a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, it's good to have you along on Inside Sources today. I'm Doug Wright, uh, filling in and... We've got a jam-packed program for you. We're going to talk about uh, earthquake preparedness in Salt Lake City proper and some money that has uh, periodically comes our way to help out with the unreinforced masonry buildings. We'll be talking about that with Andre Pierce in the course of the program. Boy, the Inland Port, that is a hot topic in the state of Utah right now, and especially when you talk Salt Lake City politics right now and uh, Salt Lake City's relationship with Capitol Hill regarding the Inland Port. Uh, we are going to go with uh, kind of a neutral organization that is looking into this and some of the information surrounding the Inland Port. And I love the title of this. It's the Inland Port Report. And we'll uh, we'll get into that with uh, Ari Bruning and uh, with Envision Utah. And then also, uh, the deer hunt. A lot of people have been out there in various ways and forms, you know, whether bow or black powder or whatever. We're going to talk with Faith Jolly about some of the guidelines for this season. But I'm very pleased to have our state treasurer here in studio with us to kick off the program today. David Damshin, what a pleasure to have you here in studio. Normally, we come to you and we uh, inflict the movie show upon you once a year. I love it, Doug. It's always good to be with you. Always good to be with you. Thanks for having me. The thing that's kind of spooky about this guy, he gets just as snarky as we are on the movie show. Is that possible, really? No, no. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that could be debated. You know, every time we chat and every time we have that special edition of the movie show, it's all designed to give people their money back or get people there. We're not giving them anything. We're getting their money back. And I was reading an article that you authored, and it's addressed to the U.S. Treasury, not the Utah State Treasury, not Arkansas's Treasury, Louisiana, uh, Louisiana's Treasury. It's designed to hopefully have an effect on the United States Treasury. What motivated you to write that op-ed piece? Well, what I do is, as Utah State Treasurer is not unique uh, within the country, all states have an unclaimed property agency. Most of them are overseen or run by their respective state treasurers. And it happens that state treasurers are pretty good at reuniting lost properties with, with rightful owners. And so it turns out that the U.S. Treasury, which has been issuing savings bonds since 1934, I believe. Yeah. I mean, um, what, what kid out there, what grandma, you know, who hasn't given a savings bond? I remember as a little kid walking down the hall at Libby Edward Elementary School to get my, you know, little savings bond stamps that we'd, we'd buy periodically so we could get a $25 bond. Absolutely. Well, in this day and age, of course, those paper-based processes are going away. And right. as with other uh, security stocks and bonds. Um, yeah, nobody Treasury gets sec- a certificate anymore. Yeah, it's all electronic these days. I one of the best investments I ever made for my my mother was uh, inflation indexed savings bonds. It felt very unsophisticated at the time for someone right. like me with my my background, but th- that turned out to be one of the best investments I ever made for her. 
Um, so it turns out that there's about $26 billion in savings bonds that have matured, that are no longer accruing interest, and that have never been cashed or redeemed by their owners. $26 billion nationally. Wow. And so John Kennedy, Louisiana senator and former state treasurer of Louisiana, took this up, actually pursued it along with a few other state treasurers through litigation with Treasury to try to compel Treasury to facilitate the handing over perhaps of those funds or maybe just the data Mm -hmm. telling us who had how much uh, in the various states because we have these systems at the state level to put the information out there so people can search to see if they have lost money. So when the the litigation concluded, the state's lost, uh, Treasury was was, – there's no legal compulsion on the U.S. Treasury to do anything, but there was sort of a gentleman's agreement that came out of that. The Treasury would facilitate um, a a pilot, which never happened. And so recently, Senator Kennedy introduced legislation that will compel Treasury to, to uh, cooperate and to work with the states to at least perhaps provide the data to the states that would allow them to if we can scrape up the information from microfilm or whatever from back right. in the 70s and beyond um, and put that information into the databases of the states, we can hopefully get some of those lost on claim and unredeemed uh, matured savings bonds uh, cashed, basically, or, or wow. processed and that money back to the rightful owners. Even if you do the simple math on that and just divide it between the states, just a generic that's like, you know, $500 million in each and every state. It's a lot of money. The, the estimate for Utah is $233 million. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and I had a unique opportunity. I was on a drug policy panel in D.C. about three weeks ago with the New York Times Deal Book. I don't know if you follow Deal Book. It's kind of their Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. uh, daily business and economics focus. It was started by Andrew Ross Sorkin, CNBC anchor. And they had this strategy for him in D.C., the first ever. And they they picked about five hot policy issues and they they formed these task force panels. And one of them was cannabis. And it wasn't just the cannabis banking issue, but it was drug policy, but cannabis specifically. And I was on that panel to speak to the banking issue, uh, of course, along with uh, the president of the uh, uh, American Bankers Association. He and I were really there for the same limited purpose, just to speak to the banking issue. But um, after we had these breakout, they they put us in rooms, and we we dove into our policy issue. We had to come up with some resolutions and some actionable steps that we could recommend. We came back into the larger plenary session, and one of the things that happened after we – we pounded through all of the policy issues as Treasury Secretary Mnuchin came in and was interviewed by Andrew Ross Sorkin. And after Andrew Ross Sorkin got to ask all of his reporter questions, right. they did, as often happens in those events, they opened it up for audience questions. And I don't think Treasury Secretary Mnuchin was uh, ready for a state treasurer <laughs> to ask him about this very thing, but I did. I raised my hand. Yeah. They passed me the mic. And I, I basically said, Secretary Mnuchin, as you probably know, uh, state treasurers are pretty good at reuniting lost properties with rightful owners. And there are these savings bonds that uh, were involved in litigation with, with Treasury and so on and so forth. 
His response was a little bit disappointing. He he sort of mentioned the um, the projected cost that Treasury is saying that they would incur to facilitate this, and then he he kind of sniffed a little bit at the average. Oh, the average property is like five hundred dollars or something. And you know as well as I do that for a lot of wow. American families, five hundred dollars that makes is a meaningful. difference. That's right. And this is spread across the country. And again, on the aggregate, twenty six billion dollars, and and perhaps as much as two hundred thirty three million here in Utah. So it's real money, and it it matters to to those folks who uh, may have an opportunity to get it back where it belongs. You know, when we just uh, the the very first time we did our movie show remote broadcast, when it's the 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 time of year when we focus on helping folks to, to be reunited with their money. Uh, you challenged me to, to go, and, and I did. And I found over $500 for my little cousin, Janet. I found over $100 for my retired teacher mother. And I'll tell you, everybody was thrilled. My cousin, Janet, just thought it was Christmas to, to get, you know, uh, just out of the blue, 500 bucks. And for my mom, a retired, you know, teacher who at that time was in her late 80s, I, it makes a difference. Sometimes, you know, that, that little sniff you mentioned almost bugs me because, you know, in the real world, 100 bucks, 500 bucks, it makes a big difference to us. Well, there is progress now. Um, just this past week, Treasury reached out to Senator Kennedy's office and said, you know, that pilot we said we would run, but we weren't moving on. Let's get moving on it. Senator Kennedy has placed a, a $25 million appropriation into um, the the current budget bill. Of course, so long as we're, we're funding government with continuing resolutions, which yeah. is likely to go on for some time, yeah. nothing's going to happen. And this is only on the Senate appropriations bill at this point. But there's movement and there's there's a stronger degree of goodwill coming from Treasury just in the past Good. week or so. Good. So I think we're starting to get some traction on the issue. But um, the, the, the issue for me, as you know, the state is a secure and reliable custodian of these monies. And we work diligently to get it back to where it belongs. But the fact remains that we hold money in trust until it either goes to help fund public education or it gets to the rightful owner. We don't want this sitting in government coffers. We want it in the pockets of the Americans who have a right to that money right. because I know that you have much better ideas what to do with your money than I will ever have <laughs> in government, right? Yeah, yeah. And so as a conservative, sure. I just I don't want that money sitting with US Treasury. I don't want it sitting here at the state either. We yeah. want to get it out the door where it belongs because it does so much so much good for our economy, for our families. Right. And uh, so it's it's serious business. Let, let's take a brief break. And when we come back, I'd like to uh, walk people through the process as we do when we do our movie show remote, how people can be reunited with their money. And then also maybe we could talk about the uh, Safe Banking Act. We had uh, Congressman McAdams on with us last week. He brought that up and maybe I can get your take on that too. Happy to. Okay, David Mitchell. Uh, almost, almost introduced you as the Treasury Secretary of the United States. Hey, that'll David do. Damshin, not Mnuchin, but David Damshin is here with us at KSL News Radio. And you know, I have not been giving you proper deference because you are the president of the National Association of State Treasurers. I did not know that. You should still call me Dave. <laughs> yeah. Old Dave and I will be back here in just a minute on Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. 
For those who uh, might uh, have just tuned in, we're talking with our Utah State Treasurer and also David Damshin happens to be the president of the National Association of State uh, Treasurers. And we talked about an op-ed piece that he wrote that was uh, encouraging of the federal government, the U.S. Treasury, to particularly pay attention to the $26 billion that is out there representing the little savings bonds. You know, we were talking off the air, David. When you think of those who invested in savings bonds, there's kind of that additional little warm and fuzzy about it. I I remember when I grew up, it was a big deal. It was not only a great way to save, but it was a great way to support the country. It was a great way to be a a patriot, Mm -hmm. a good citizen of the United States. And you would you would almost think with these little bonds, whether it was twenty five, fifty, hundred, two fifty, whatever it might have been, maybe something that grandma gave you for your fourteenth birthday, you'd almost think there's more of a responsibility and more of a of a need to make sure that this great nation fulfills the full faith and promise and gets it back to the people. That's right. What's interesting though and unique, if you want to if you want to give Treasury a little bit of an excuse to drag their feet, one thing they could say is some of the folks that haven't cashed those bonds have done that on purpose out of patriotism. They've said, mm. you know what? I don't want to redeem that bond. Oh, interesting. I, I, I didn't even thought of that. Yeah. I don't. But let's let them make that decision uh, definitively right. with knowledge, not because as you know, so much unclaimed property becomes unclaimed because we forget about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'd rather have the data out there and have our constituents able to search and find, oh, gosh, here's a savings bond I forgot about 25 years ago. Yeah. I'm just going to let it go because I love my country. That's great. Yeah, if somebody but wants to do that. Let them make that decision with the knowledge that they're they're doing so willfully rather than Absolutely. hiding the ball, the $26 billion ball. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fairly significant ball, by the way. And, you know, we've mentioned that here in the state of Utah and elsewhere, other states too, have really put together programs and have been quite aggressive of trying to get the money back to its its rightful owners. And sometimes it is property other than cash or, or bonds or things like that themselves. How do people go about that in the state of Utah? Here in Utah, you can search uh, online at mycash.utah.gov, G-O-V. And I tell people um, one in five Utahns has lost property. Right. So if you'll take 20 minutes and search for family members, friends, coworkers, uh, anyone that you can think of, kind of like you've done, you just get online yeah. and, and search, um, you'll probably find someone that you know that has money with us. Well, I certainly did. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't and me, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's, we implemented a new system last year that, that makes much more of the process online. Instead of mailing yeah. us forms, much more of the interaction and the data collection happens online. Uh, it is a secure, encrypted website. And so we're working towards, like, uh, as we were talking about offline, we're still digesting the new system and our business processes are still evolving around that. Uh, with the new system, once it's fully implemented, um, we'll have a very efficient process. But right now, as I mentioned to you, we're, we're, we have a significant backlog. And it's great to say we're, we're getting these big dollars out. Last year, $29.3 million more than ever before. Um, but we're not as, as, as efficient right now as I would like to be. So if anyone out there has a claim underway and it's not moving quickly, thank you for your patience. Right. We're working right. on it vigorously. We're working overtime. We're, we're hiring temps. We're, we're doing what we can. 
uh, to adjust to this new system and, and enhance uh, our service and make sure our service delivery is, is good. We're talking with our state treasurer, David Damshin. And before we we wrap things up, uh, you alluded to this, that you were back on panels regarding this. I mentioned that uh, last week, it was uh, a week ago today, as a matter of fact, we talked with our 4th District Congressman, who is a co-sponsor of the Safe Banking Act. And uh, Ben McAdams had this to say. Let's play this. It's still illegal at the federal level. So um, the problem is, Utah, for example, if, if we're going to sell medical marijuana pursuant to state law, um, you can't take a credit card. If you take a credit card, then the bank that's issued that credit card could lose their banking charter because it, uh, they would be seen in the eyes of the federal government as financing a drug trade. They can't make a loan to build a facility. They can't uh, make payroll for employees. And so what we've said is, you know, I... Uh, I don't think the Congress is ready to legalize even medical marijuana at this point. There's not bipartisan support for that. But what we the, the bill before the committee was to say, can we not agree that if the states have taken action like Utah did, that we would at least say that the banks can uh, act in accordance with state law without repercussions at the federal level? Because the alternative is you've got a cash business. You've got hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars in cash that's floating around. Uh, that's actually dangerous. That cash could find its way into financing terrorism, financing other illegal drugs, human trafficking, uh, tax evasion and tax fraud. We don't want a cash business of that magnitude. It's just not safe for society. So can't we agree that if a business is complying with their state's laws, like Utah's medical marijuana law, that um, we won't punish the banks for financing that industry? Well, you have written about this. You have uh, been involved in the panels and discussions back in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. Where do we stand on this? Is this going to happen? It did pass through the House, and now I guess it's at the Senate, and the House always uh, jokes kind of cryptically that the Senate is the graveyard for House bills. Is this going to move forward? It is moving. Um, this has this has been a tough year for me on this issue. Most of us in public service don't necessarily have a position on cannabis. I certainly don't. And I, for the purposes of Utah, I'm not sure that recreational cannabis would be a good thing. Um, I, I, I'm all in on what my constituents and what my legislature have, have approved Mm -hmm. with our medicinal marijuana system, medicinal cannabis system. I'm sorry. And so I've been working with my team for a year and a half or so to, to make sure we can provide payments and and ensure that the system works as, as much as possible. I uh, led an effort within the National Association of State Treasurers to adopt a resolution that basically says we as treasurers have no position on cannabis, but much like what you heard from Representative McAdams, we recognize when you have 34 states plus the District of Columbia legalizing medicinal and or recreational Two-thirds, roughly two-thirds of the U.S. population lives in a state where cannabis is legal in some way. Right. And right. we have this cash and we, we have this lack of access to the to the security of the regulated banking system. It's a huge problem. So we did pass a resolution. It was tough because it was – we're a nonpartisan organization. Uh, it was a bipartisan resolution, but we had six Republicans that, that did not support the resolution. And I understand why they didn't. I think there are those that say, hey, we don't want to – support or facilitate anything that allows for the proliferation proliferation of mm-hmm. cannabis in any way, shape, or form. I'm just here to do the work for my constituents on the banking front. 
Um, I've spent a fair amount of time in D.C., um, not only with uh, Representative McAdams, but also Representative Perlmutter from Colorado, who is the chief sponsor of the Safe Banking Act in the House, Corey, Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado, right. uh, who has sponsored similar legislation in the Senate. A big, uh, a big break or, I guess, advance in the process here recently is the decision made by Senator Crapo of Idaho to have the issue heard in Senate Banking Committee. And well, so there is definitely momentum, um, and uh, I think that's a good thing. I think we need to, to take it head on. Boy, even for people that maybe aren't fully on board with uh, medicinal cannabis or whatever is being discussed, the the other side of that coin is, boy, how much of – one article I read, duffel bags full of money floating around is not a good thing either. So I appreciate your efforts on this. And, David, it's always good to chat with you, whatever the topic is. You've been a great friend of the movie show and a great friend of mine, and I really appreciate you being here. And I appreciate these things you're working so hard on. Oh, it's my pleasure, Doug, always. The treasure of the great state of Utah, David Damshin, with us here on Inside Sources. Much more to come, including a conversation about earthquake preparedness in Salt Lake City in particular. We'll be talking with Audrey Pierce before too long. Stay with us on Inside Sources. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. On KSL News Radio, 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. It's always so good to talk with uh, David Damshin, our state treasurer. And once a year, we do a movie show uh, remote that is designed to really have fun with getting people's money and their property back to them. And it is startling. It really is amazing how many people have that little account that they they totally forgot about. And that money doesn't go back into the bank or the institution or whatever. It goes to the state of Utah. And then their goal is to work very, very diligently to get it back to its uh, rightful rightful owners. And as I mentioned, uh, the, the very first year we did that, I put in the information and bam, we got three hits. Now, D had some money coming back, but I think it was two bucks. <laughs> If I remember, maybe three dollars, so it was uh, it was uh, you know uh, hardly worth the effort. But as I mentioned, for my mom it was over over a hundred dollars, and for my little cousin Janet, it was over five hundred dollars. And I just searched, you know, maybe six seven names, and bam, three of them had money coming back from the estate. Uh, Steve Sales on the movie show did that also. And he found money for people in in his family. Sometimes it's amazing that little weird bank account that you had back when you were in college, and you just you know it had a couple of you know maybe twenty thirty bucks in it, and it just you move a couple of times and it just goes into the ether. So, anyway, very interesting conversation with uh, Dave Damchin, our treasurer here in the state of Utah. Uh, coming up in a minute, we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk with the critical infrastructure liaison for Salt Lake City about earthquake preparedness. 
And uh, this really resonates with me uh, because it wasn't that long ago that uh, I emceed an event for Envision Utah. It was a, a morning breakfast over at uh, Grand America. And they had a, a national expert who came in and talked to us about some of the earthquake issues and how vulnerable, really, the Wasatch Front is and the state of Utah. And, oh, my goodness, you know, talk about a wake-up call. And as everybody always says over and over, we hear this. I've heard it ever since I was a little kid. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. And most uh, geologists, most experts in this field will tell you that we're basically a little overdue. So uh, Salt Lake City Emergency Management every year applies to receive funds from FEMA. And uh, it's called Fix the Bricks and unreinforced masonry buildings. And you know, a lot of old, beautiful homes uh, are exactly that. There is no reinforcement in the brick structure, the masonry structure of that building. So we'll talk with Audrey about that. There are a couple of quick things that I'd like to bring up first before we do uh, wade into that arena. And by the way, if you have any questions or if you have any comments about anything that we're doing on the show, we always love to hear from you right here on our Utah Community Credit Union KSL text line, and that's 57500. So please, if you have any uh, questions you want me to pass along to uh, Audrey Pierce when she joins us or uh, when we talk about the Inland Port Report with uh, Ari Bruning, or later on we talk about some of the hunting practices here in the state of Utah, you're always welcome to participate in the program that way. Or you can leave us a voice message, which we always enjoy. It's 801-5... Well, okay, truth in, truth in advertising here, most of the time we enjoy. 801-575-7668. Uh, a couple of things that I wanted just to touch on quickly. This is uh, running as a breaking news crawl. Uh, most of the national uh, networks right now. Uh, This happens to come from one of the uh, D.C. papers. Two business associates uh, of Trump's personal lawyer, Giuliani, have been arrested on campaign finance charges. Uh, Apparently, this has to do with uh, two men who helped Rudolph Giuliani investigate former Vice President Joe Biden were arrested Wednesday night in Virginia Uh, This is according to a person familiar with the charges. This person spoke on the condition of anonymity. And apparently it's Lev Parnas, Parmas, am I saying that right? And Igor Fruman have been under investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan. And they are expected to appear in federal court in Virginia later on Thursday, according to the indictment. Uh, Parnas and Furman, uh, or Fruman rather, and other defendants, quote, conspired to circumvent the federal laws against foreign influence by engaging in a scheme to funnel foreign money to candidates for federal and state office so that the defendants could buy potential influence with the candidates, campaigns, and candidates' governments. The indictment also alleges that they schemed to donate money to an unidentified U.S. congressman at the same time, they were asking that congressman to get the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine removed from her job. So we'll keep a close eye on this and things, you know, regardless of how you feel about the inquiry, regardless how you feel about impeachment, regardless of how you feel about uh, President Trump, there are some rather interesting things that are unfolding that we'll keep a close eye on. The other question that's coming up more and more 
is what's the deal with Bernie Sanders, really? And uh, I thought this was interesting. This comes from Fox News. Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, admitted Tuesday he, quote, was dumb, end quote, and ignored warning signs of a health condition in the months leading up to his heart attack last week. Uh, He just flat out said, quote, I must confess, I was dumb. And then he went on to uh, say, thank heaven, or thank God, I have a lot of energy during this campaign. I've been doing, in some cases, three or four rallies a day, going all over the state, Iowa, New Hampshire, wherever. And yet I, in the last month or two, just was more fatigued than I normally have been. And he said, I should have listened to those symptoms. Uh, 78-year-old presidential hopeful now, and he said, I was just dumb. I should have paid attention more. Uh, Sanders revealed that he never had a doctor in his Vermont hometown, let alone a cardiologist, because his primary physician is based in Washington, D.C. Sanders did say we're going to go meet him, uh, and he and his wife, Jane, they were going to attend the appointment uh, with his new physician. And Bernie Sanders said, quote, I understand he's a very good cardiologist, going to see him on a regular basis to get some checkups, and obviously I'll be on and off in Vermont, and so we're going to meet with him today. He insisted that he was feeling good and that he doesn't think the heart attack, for which he had two stents inserted into his chest to help with the blood flow, helps or hurts the chances of beating President Trump in 2020, and his campaign is de- is downplaying any skepticism that his ailments would have a negative pack, uh, impact of any kind on the presidential run. And uh, the campaign is saying, make no mistake, Senator Bernie Sanders is as committed, more so, even more now, than he always has been, if that's possible. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that. We'll continue to keep an eye on what indeed is happening with these associates of uh, Rudy Giuliani, who now have been arrested. Again, that arrest occurred last night uh, in Virginia, and uh, some some pretty heavy charges are here. Uh, it's alleged that they conspired to circumvent the federal laws against foreign influence by engaging in a scheme to funnel foreign money to candidates for federal and state office so that the defendants could buy potential influence with the candidates' campaigns and the candidates' government. And there there are some other issues as well, as we mentioned. So we'll keep a close eye on that. All right, coming up next here on Inside Sources, uh, how are we standing when it comes to earthquake preparedness in particular? And we'll talk with Audrey Pierce, who is the uh, city's critical infrastructure liaison, What is the Fix the Bricks program? That's all here at KSL. Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Before we get to the topic at hand, we want to talk about Fix the Bricks and unreinforced masonry buildings uh, here along the Wasatch Front, but particularly in Salt Lake City. I wanted to uh, bring you up to date on what we were just talking about. We actually have a little sound. This is William Sweeney, who is assistant director in charge of the FBI's New York office, who announced the charges against those two associates of uh, Rudy Giuliani. Let's let's hear that, Gustavo. Harness and Fruman contributed $325,000 to Committee One. Now, this contribution was not made in their name. 
It was made in the name of a corporation that they set up, GEP, in order to hide that the true individuals behind the donation were Parnas and Fruman. The $325,000 was one of the largest donations that Committee 1 received. And we, uh, in the indictment, we indicated and alleged that this was an illegal straw donor scheme. In addition, Parnas and Fruman made direct contributions to Congressman 1. And these contributions, direct and promised, totaled over $20,000. And again, these two individuals that he is referring to, Parnas and Fruman, are two business associates of President Trump's personal lawyer, Rudolph W. Giuliani, and uh, charged with that scheme. So uh, we got that sound. I wanted to share it with you because we were just bringing you what was uh, breaking news in the previous hour that those arrests had occurred in Virginia just last night. Uh, We're very pleased to have joining us here in studio from Salt Lake City, the central, critical rather, infrastructure liaison, uh, Audrey Pierce, is here with us. Audrey, welcome. Thank you for joining us here on Inside Sources. Thanks for having us here today. It wasn't long ago that uh, I emceed an event at the Grand America in downtown Salt Lake City. Uh, Envision Utah hosted it, and they brought in a, a national, international expert on earthquakes. And boy, the picture she painted, uh, you know, gave us all pause. And I've, I've roughly heard this ever since I was a kid. But boy, uh, emergency preparedness, earthquake preparedness, not only in Salt Lake City, but along the Wasatch Front is really a, uh, a somewhat critical issue. I've heard this ever since I was a kid. It's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. Before we talk about fix the bricks, paint the picture for us. How, how critical is being on top of this in Salt Lake City and elsewhere? So like you, I've lived in Salt Lake City my whole life. And I've heard since I was little that, you know, the earthquake's going to happen. You know, you would do fire drills and then you do earthquake drills. Um, but then as you kind of get older, it kind of goes to the back of your mind. You're like, yeah. you've heard it, but it doesn't happen. But the potential is very real. Um, there's people way smarter than me, scientists, geologists looking into these things. And they do say that we're overdue for the earthquake. And the impact that that's going to have is going to be devastating. Um, just based on the way that we are built and kind of in, kind of huddled into the mountains, you know, we could be isolated and have, um, trans, there's going to be transportation issues. There's going to be medical issues. There's going to be buildings that are collapsed. People are going to be without power. Um, you know, so all those kinds of things you see in other areas, it's going to be very real here. Um, and the earthquake is a priority risk for our entire region. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's one of the reasons why FEMA supports our program for Fix the Bricks is because they want to see people doing things to mitigate against the impacts. I want to talk specifically about that program in, in a moment, but you mentioned how unique we are uh, here in the state of Utah. First of all, we're all built along a major, major fault. Mm-hmm. And many of our, I've, I've told this story before, but when I took a class at Westminster uh, on geology, and I can remember the professor said, uh, somebody asked the question, well, where does the Wasatch fault actually run? And he somewhat facetiously, but not completely facetiously said, well, 
just on the east side of, of our valleys, draw a line between all of the fire stations, the hospitals, and the schools. And that's basically where the Wasatch Fault is. And, you know, it was amazing. He was obviously joking a little bit. But it's amazing how true it was with East High School, you know, the transportation corridor, the waters, you know, that are crossing along Highland Drive and all of that stuff. Uh, there, there's some real truth to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting. You'd have to almost look at a map to see where it is because um, the fault lines, people kind of tend to think of it as like one line. One big one, yeah. But it's actually kind of several lines kind of linked together and Honestly, it goes from as far as Ogden all the way down to Provo, comes all the way along the Wasatch Front, and there's even lines that go and spread out into the valley. Mm-hmm. So um, they break it up into segment areas. And so when we start talking about, you know, an earthquake happening along the Wasatch Fault along the Salt Lake segment. Right. It is interesting where you can see the escarpment itself. And mm-hmm. some things that we just see as a hill or what you get out by Lakai, you can so clearly see. And there are other places where you can really see where the, mm. the fault has slipped in the, in the past. Let's talk about fix the bricks. First of all, maybe you could uh, define unreinforced masonry buildings. So um, <clears throat> if you're thinking back to a lot of the housing infrastructure that we have, around the valley, um, a lot of our homes were built, you know, before Salt Lake City really had significant earthquake codes. So we're talking earthquake codes kind of become, started addressing these things in like the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. um, um, sometime after California was already more progressive about those things than we were. Um, so any of whole houses that are over 50 years old, um, a lot of the houses were built as just brick, but they didn't have um, some of the uh, metal and stuff and rebar on the insides like we do now. So it's just brick stacked upon brick, stacked upon brick, but there's nothing else really holding them together others than the mortar. Right. Um, and then the other thing, too, is uh, the roofs are essentially sitting on top of the houses, um, and even the foundations and the walls, they're just sitting on top of each other and holding themselves together by the gravity and the force. So once the ground shakes, the things tend to shift independently. And that's one of the things we try to address with the program is to brace those things together so that when the ground shakes, those things move together instead of independently. Well, I think of the major efforts that have occurred in Salt Lake City proper, but also elsewhere. I think of three big, huge projects. I can remember during the time of Mayor DePaul, that they completely redid the city and county building. Mm -hmm. And uh, very, very recently, they redid the entire Utah State Capitol Mm -hmm. building. I can remember at the time, Ed Yates on Channel 5, they they did what it was on a modeled basis. And what would happen with a relatively heavy, not disastrous, but relatively heavy uh, earthquake if it hit the, the Capitol building. And it was just frightening to watch. It was like watching Independence Day, the movie, and you see the White House blow up, and you go, oh, my goodness. And then right now, getting underway in just a, a matter of, uh, of months will be the a— temple. Exactly, mm-hmm. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as solid and all of the things that that building has gone through and as mm-hmm. well built as it was, uh, they're completely retrofitting that. It's really quite remarkable this how serious— you know, our big organizations like the the church, like the city, like the state, like the county are taking mm-hmm. this. Well, thanks to a lot of organizations that are kind of trying to reiterate the risk 
to the area, um, like the Utah Seismic Safety Commission. They've done a lot. Um, the State Department of Emergency Management, um, the University of Utah does a lot of studies on these things. But the fact that people are talking about it and bringing it to the forefront, um, engineers are looking into these buildings more. Um, so I've actually met a few times with a few engineers um, to discuss, like, how do we start addressing these issues? And the projects that you're talking about, the retrofitting is completely different than what we do to mm-hmm. these houses, but that's because that's a more full scale to preserve that building because it's right. historic or necessary. Um, where with the houses, we're just trying to do what we can to hopefully prevent collapse of the building and in that matter, trying to prevent more, um, not so much death and injury from those buildings collapsing and hopefully give people time to get out of the buildings and that sort of thing where, you know, like what they've done to the Capitol and stuff like that is to preserve the whole building as a whole. Right. Not only the historical nature and the, and mm-hmm. the, the significance of the building, but the absolute essential things that go on within those buildings um, well. Even the building that I'm housed in, um, the public safety building, mm-hmm. um, that building was built to be able to withstand – um, earthquake forces. Uh, so like the floors move independently of each other. You can see shock absorbers when you walk around. Yeah. Um, so, and then like you said, like the Capitol's more of a base isolation so that the whole building can move on these platforms essentially. Um, and it's really interesting if you ever get a chance to actually take a tour through some of those buildings and look at those retrofit measures. They're really interesting to it's observe. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Mayor Biskupski was kind enough uh, several years ago when I was still doing my regular program, we did a Halloween show over in the city and county building, and they took me down in the tunnel, you know, the whole thing that <laughs> used to go over to the jail. And down there, you can you can really see how the old cement foundation was drilled through and great big rubber shock absorbers are put in there. It's really quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. And I've traveled around to a few other places and seen other emergency operations center, for instance, in California and stuff like that. And, um, and they actually, some of their base isolation, you walk around under their buildings looks very similar to some of the things that we've done here. When we come back, we'll take a brief break. And uh, Audrey, could we talk about fix the bricks? And I got a real kick out of the text we got just a few minutes ago. Well, what about the brick homes in Provo? <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. But Audrey is here specifically from the, uh, <laughs> the from Salt Lake City. So stay with us, and we'd love to get your texts. Any questions or comments, you can use the Utah Community Credit Union uh, KSL text line at five seven five zero zero. Inside sources. Inside sources. On KSL News Radio, 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. I really appreciate uh, Audrey Pierce staying with us for another segment, and we'd uh, again be absolutely, uh, uh, well, you'd be welcome to participate in the program with any questions you might uh, have. And uh, we we talked about buildings that are fundamentally over 50 years old, there there might be some reasons you would want to look into uh, some of the issues that we're talking about. But I wanted specifically, this person said, uh, hey, Doug, ask her about some of the buildings in downtown Salt Lake City, you know, where people live, American Towers and so on, you know, and some of those buildings now, I still think of American Towers as being brand new, but they've, <laughs> they've been there a long, long time now. So are we fairly secure in the heart of downtown Salt Lake City, especially with the residential buildings? 
No, actually, um, the residential buildings can be more of a risk than the single-family dwellings because of the amount of people that are inside of them. But a lot of those older buildings are also unreinforced masonry. Um, With our program, we would like to eventually be able to get to the point where we're doing some retrofits on those buildings. Mm -hmm. But our program is still fairly young. We're about three years in. Um, As far as like a funded program, there was some other stuff prior to that, which was more outreach and educational. Um, But as we grow and expand, we're looking at trying to address businesses and apartments and other types of um, not we may not even be doing retrofitting on those buildings. We may be looking at, you know, policies or um, code enforcement, all Mm -hmm. those kinds of things that play into the bigger picture. Interesting. Interesting. Let me reintroduce you to our guest. Audrey Pierce is here with us, and uh, she is from the uh, Salt Lake City Emergency Management Department. Is that fair to say? Mm -hmm. And uh, what about fix the bricks? You know, one one thing that pops to mind, I can remember years ago when we were covering the earthquake in Wells, Nevada, and we watched those, uh, and they weren't particularly high. They were two, maybe three-story max type buildings, but they were those old school, almost looked old Western type. Mm-hmm. I think of that we have them through Salt Lake City. I think of uh, where I like to hang out down in Eureka. All of our buildings down there are like that. And I looked at the cracks and how that just kind of came apart. Is that what, and especially this one with individual residential buildings, is that the goal to somehow at least make it so you can get out alive? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and on some of the damage of pictures I've seen from the Wells earthquake, um, those businesses specifically, um, it was unreinforced parapets that fell into the sidewalks Mm. and things like that and the front facades. Is that kind of the decorative stuff? The decorative stuff that's above the building but is kind of just up not really braced to the back end to keep it from coming over. Right. And boy, you see that a lot on those old buildings. You know, you, they look so grandiose in the front and then you go behind it and it's just pretty much, <laughs> it's 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 mm-hmm. facade. Yeah. And I live in Magna and I go down Magna Main Street and I see all those and I it, I, it just makes me cringe because I'm like, we need to do more yeah. about this. But it takes involvement from the business owners um, and the landlords. And so, you know, that's what makes... Our program specifically for single-family dwellings now is the homeowners, right? If the homeowners come to us, then we can work with them because, you know, they're part of – they have ownership in that. But we get people coming to us all the time, like I've lived in an apartment building or I have a condo or those kinds of things. Or they live in a duplex, but they don't own the rest of the building. And it's a lot harder for us to figure out how to help them because we need the person with ownership to be part of the solution. For FEMA's pre-disaster mitigation grant program, which – in Salt Lake City is, is where our funding comes from. Yes, fix the bricks. How far can that money go? I mean, to me, four million is a lot of money. <laughs> but when you're right. when you're looking at redoing or making somebody's home safe for them to escape from, mm-hmm. how far does that four million go? It doesn't go as far as you would think. So the four million will help roughly two hundred and fifty fifteen homes. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, but. The thing is, is, you know, in order for us to be able, there's so many homes in Salt Lake um, that right now we're currently trying to pass down a 75-25 split on these homes. So in order for us to 
kind of reach more people, we have to address, you know, how we distribute the funding. Should we change the percentages? Should we have income guidelines? And those are kind of things we think about on the back end all the time, every time we're trying to um, try to get more funding. But, you know, I would tell people if, if you are worried about it and you financially think you could, you know, have an engineer look at your house. Um, and give you an evaluation, have a contractor give you a bid so you can kind of see what it's going to be. And then, you know, go from there. Um, we have, I, we even tell people that on our waiting list that currently our waiting list, it could take years for us to get to everybody that's on there. So if you have the means, you know, try to do something on your own. And even if you can't afford to do the structural retrofits, look at the non-structural things because those are just as unsafe, um, as the actual building collapse, you know, bookshelves can fall over, so brace them to a wall. You don't put um, heavy things on top shelves. You know, there's all kinds of things people can do, and there's tons of information out there. And even if people go to our website, we have links to manuals, links to flyers, all kinds of things that give people information on those types of things they could do. You mentioned a lot of people are on the list already that could be years Mm -hmm. uh, to wait. But for people who would like to get involved, would like to maybe get on the list, would like to be part of the Fix the Bricks campaign in Salt Lake City, how do they do it? So there is a link on our our website. Um, So they can go there and submit an application. Um, The other thing that, you know, people could do is, like I said, um, there's a manual on that website, you know, so if you have some expertise or background and wanted to flip through that and look at the details, people could do that as well. What is the actual website? Just so I can write it down here. So um, it is fixthebricks.com. Fixthebricks.com. That easy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, l- let's address the, uh, the the question we got, obviously, from somebody in Provo. What about the brick homes in Provo? Uh, for those who don't live in Salt Lake City, are there similar programs for other communities and other areas? So the reason why right now the funding is Salt Lake City specific is because Salt Lake City is applying for the grant funding. Um, We have had plenty of conversations with other jurisdictions um, in order for them to be able to bring a program like this or expand on our program. um, Their jurisdiction needs to apply for the funding um, and if there is anybody out there that would be interested or somebody that has a role um, in one of those areas, they can contact me and we can discuss what that actual expansion looks like, or they can talk to um, the State Department of Emergency Management. Um, there's the gentleman by the name of Brad Bartholomew up there that mm-hmm. we work with um, that helps us with the grant application they could have a conversation with him about how they could apply for their jurisdiction. Oh, great, great. Audrey, I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for you and your colleagues who have been here today. And again, it's fixthebricks.com. Mm-hmm. Got it. Thank you for passing along all the information to us here at KSL News Radio on Inside Sources. Now, coming up next on the program, we're going to be talking about the inland port. We're going to be talking about some guidelines for the hunting season. And there's a salary report out right now that shows that Utah, as a state, is right in the middle. And this comes from business.org. We're going to talk about that with Madison Hagan, who is communication specialist for business.org. All that and more right here on Inside Sources. 
Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Well, it's good to have you along on the program today. We'd love to hear from you on our Utah Community Credit Union text line, and that's 57500. If you have any comments you'd like to leave for us, you can always do that at 801 575 7668. Doug Wright filling in on Inside Sources. We were uh, reading a little bit, uh, some information. It's the, I, I love this title, the Inland Port Report. Did I get that right, uh, Ari, the Inland Port Report? Yeah, this is this is the report of our uh, public engagement work that we've been doing for the last uh, number of months. Ari, of course, is here with us from Envision Utah. And uh, we've talked about a lot of things lately. We talked about the teacher compensation. It's amazing what Envision Utah is involved in. And I thought it was it was interesting. Uh, at the beginning of what I was reading here as a nonprofit organization, uh, we serve as a neutral facilitator. And this is just designed to really look at what some of the issues are. Uh, this is a, a thick report that I've just given a cursory view. But what was this all about? What was the goal and what are the different phases that come up in this Inland Port report? Yeah, so. The Inland Port Authority is still at the beginning stages of its planning to figure out uh, what what they're going to do, what their goals are, and so on. And so this was uh, part of an effort to listen to the public and understand what Utahns want to see happen um, in this part of Salt Lake County. Um, so we're reporting back what we heard from thousands of Utahns online and in in-person meetings and so on um, to uh, report our findings. I was joking with you, only half joking, that, boy, if you want to give somebody high blood pressure out there, mention Inland Port. Everybody seems to have an opinion on this. Salt Lake City has a real opinion on process and so on. But that's not what you're here to really talk about. That's uh, that's political issues between the legislature and uh, and the citizenry and Salt Lake City. This is just if this moves forward, what needs to be facilitated. And what are people telling you when it comes to the Inland Port? Um well, we heard a lot about the uh, political disputes and so on, and a lot of a lot of uh, angry people there. Um, as far as the substantive outcomes of development in this area, um, number one, top of the list concern is clearly air quality, right? Um, and tied to that, traffic. Um, we also heard a lot about uh, uh, wetlands and habitat, given that this is near the Great Salt Lake. Um, so those are the top things we heard. It, it is interesting, and and I've I've actually I. I, I am with uh, I'm on the board of Envision Utah, and it's been a real eye opener for me on a lot of things. As I mentioned, teacher compensation, what to do with the old prison, you know, site, uh, which isn't a site yet or an abandoned site, but will be before too long. But especially on the inland port, I remember hearing a conversation once that this is private land; it will be developed, and it's just a question of whether or not there's a handle on it. And somehow there there's a plan surrounding it because this is not land that Salt Lake City owns. This is not BLM land. This is not this is private ownership. Yeah, this is this is privately owned land that's been zoned for industrial development. Um, there are large portions of it where the developer and the city have entered into development agreements where the city has agreed not to change the zoning. Um, so it's really not a question of whether the land's going to develop. The question is really uh, what kind of development. Uh, what kind of uh, uh, trucks and trains are running through this land, and uh, what does the traffic look like? What are the what kind of jobs are we going to attract? Those kinds of things. The inland port also will have satellites, correct? Throughout the state of Utah, cities or communities have the option. 
yeah, this last legislative session, the the uh, legislature opened up that option for other communities in rural Utah to um, have a satellite inland port, so to speak. Um, so that those are the kinds of things that are being explored. Right. Uh, I know down in Juab County, our commissioners down there are looking at things and so on. And one of the things that I'm hearing, and uh, again, I know you are and Envision Utah is in the studying of it and getting the overview and what uh, some of the concerns are and what uh, might or might not work. But the the one complaint that I hear over and over from Salt Lake City is that this is affecting our tax base. And for the satellite areas, it would not. They still retain their their taxing, property taxes, and, and things like that. How big an issue is that? And is that likely to, uh, based on what Envision Utah has heard, is that likely to alter at all? Uh, well, as I understand it, that's kind of the center of the lawsuit that's underway right now right. is the control of the tax revenue um, from the development in the area. Um, and that that tax revenue really is the primary uh, tool that the Inland Port Authority has been given in order to influence outcomes. They can uh, use that money to incentivize certain things um, – whether they're things related to air quality or wetlands or habitat and so on, or the kinds of jobs that come. Um, but the Inland Port Authority really does not have the power to just dictate what happens there. Mm-hmm. It, again, it's it's private property, and they're developing under city zoning. As you have studied this, there are other port authorities. I know for anybody who's been back in New York, there's the Jersey and uh, you know Manhattan, the New York uh, Port Authority. There, uh, when when so sadly we were dealing with the issues surrounding nine eleven, you know the land that belongs to you and the land that is under the control of, or at least the jurisdiction of the port authority. Is it is is this similar for people who are familiar with port authorities elsewhere? Is is ours similar? Uh, well, the difference here, I think, is that the port authority really doesn't own any land, and they have no, no regulatory authority, and they're not a developer. Uh, so. Really, that primary tool is just the use of that tax revenue and how they use it. Mm-hmm. So when when you look at the various phases, and that's what uh, got my attention in at least the material I was able to uh, to look over, phase one focused on convening the wide variety of stakeholders. That must have been interesting. You know, we sometimes hear the, the term herding cats. Was it at all like herding cats? Uh, it was. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, in the first phase, we did a lot of listening online. We got a lot of comments online, and there was a survey up. Um, and then we heard, held some public meetings. Um, a wide variety of folks came and gave their input. Um, and then we moved into a, a second phase where, based on what we'd heard in the first phase, we, we put together working groups for uh, six different topic areas that we knew were areas of concern. Um, and we invited uh, – all kinds of stakeholders who we knew had views or expertise on those issues to come sit at the table and and talk about uh, different things that could be done. Where does it go from here then? What's the next goal? Is there a phase three? Uh, Yeah, so the the next goal is to explore different options for what uh, could be done in the area and specifically by the Inland Port Authority. So they're they're thinking through what uh, what their policies and procedures should be and what what goals they ought to be pursuing. Mm-hmm. So this input from the public will be very helpful for from for them as they think through those things. I thought it would be most interesting to chat with you about this today because when you uh, bring in the real stakeholders, you know, either property owners or the city or somebody from the legislature, there are some fairly uh, entrenched positions and some fairly strong opinions. And Ari, one thing that I've heard, and, you know, occasionally people, just because of my association with KSL, 
they'll come up and go, Doug, that land, the inland port, that just ought to stay, you know, wild land. That ought to say, stay natural, you know. Why in the world are we developing that? You know, this inland port that's going to move in and develop all of this, and you go, oh, man, you know, that that's not the drill at all. Could you once again just explain? Because there are lots of people out there that figure that, gosh, if it wasn't for that darn legislature, that inland port wouldn't happen, and that would just remain that natural ground out there. Yeah, well, uh, the bulk of the land here is in Salt Lake City. Some is in West Valley and in Magna, but Salt Lake City worked for years on a Northwest Quadrant master plan where they identified the areas that they and the Audubon Society and others all agreed should not be developed. And then the plan was for the rest of it to become, a, I, I believe the phrase was an eco-industrial park. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of planning that's already gone into this, already been zoned, development agreements already in place. Um, so this this is a train, pardon the pun, that's been on the tracks for a long time now. Right. This is not something that the Inland Port Authority or the legislature dreamed up overnight. And we have just a couple of seconds left, but uh, from Envision Utah's point of view or from the studies that you have done, can this be accomplished without serious damage to the ecology, to the the air and the infrastructure, the traffic and so on? Yeah, I think there are things that could definitely be done to accomplish um, all the things that Utahns want. Utahns want good jobs. They also want clean air. They want uh, the habitat and the wetlands and so on respected. And I think that can be done in a good way. It's going to take a lot of people acting together, though. You and I were chatting the last time you were here. We need to have some discussions, too, on Utah's growth and where it comes from and some of the attitudes about our growth and population growth that is anticipated, how much of it is furners moving in versus homegrown. And so maybe we can look forward to another conversation before too long. That would be great. Ari, always great to have you here, the COO and president of Envision Utah. Ari Bruning with us here at KSL News Radio. Much more to come on Inside Sources, so stay with us. And uh, that includes, we're going to talk about the upcoming hunt and how things are going there. Plus, we're also going to get into Utah's income level. We appear to be right in the middle of the pack when it comes to our 50 states. I wanted to uh, add a little bit. We're keeping an eye on a couple of stories. One, the overall health of Bernie Sanders and how are things going? We had one person when he said, hey, I was just plain dumb. And, of course, we got a little snarky uh, (laughs) text message on that and go, hey, we've known that for a long time, Bernie. Well, you know, hey, let's, uh, let's give the guy some slack here. And as I've mentioned, I've always had a begrudging admiration for Bernie Sanders. Now, before you send me hate mail, I I would never vote for him. I do not agree with much of his nuts and bolts politics, but I do admire the spirit of some of the things that he talks about. There seems to be a real caring for his fellow citizens and humankind in general. And the one thing that you can say about Bernie Sanders, you've heard me say this before, he is, if nothing else, he is consistent. The Bernie Sanders that you would have known as the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, is exactly the same Bernie Sanders that we see today on the national stage. If you listen to to interviews, and they're out there on YouTube, if you listen to interviews that he gave when he was going back to the Democratic Convention in 1988, you will see a much younger Bernie Sanders. His hair is not white, still a little wild and crazy, but... But he is saying the same thing. 
the things that were motivating him, the things that he cared about, the things that he was passionate about in 1988 is exactly, is exactly what he's talking about today. And so I, I have a begrudging admiration for Bernie Sanders. I truly do. I would never vote for him. I do not like the direction that I believe he would take our country. But, you know, people say, boy, I wish I could just find somebody who was consistent. I wish I could find somebody who wasn't flip-flopping all the time. I wish I could find somebody who seemed to be relatively honest about what he believes. Well, that's Bernie Sanders. And I think, along with kind of having a Santa Claus image as well with younger millennials in our country, remember how well he fared last time round in the state of Utah in our in our primary he he did very well in Utah and it was primarily with the young people who i think first of all catch his passion second of all i think the humanitarian side of what he has to say resonates and honestly that, he he's offering everything for free but he has always done that so Bernie Sanders, that's somebody we're keeping an eye on. And then this one is really interesting. Uh, the indictment of a uh, Soviet-born businessman is raising questions about Pete Sessions' role in the Ukraine saga. Remember we talked about how two of Rudy Giuliani's uh, business associates have now been arrested and uh, they were arrested last night in Virginia. And do we still have that soundbite? Could we... Uh, we, we don't. We don't have that soundbite. But we had the special agent in charge describe what the charges were and why these two inter, uh, individuals were arrested. But now we're getting some updates on this. This comes from the Dallas News. Former Dallas Representative Pete Sessions appears to play a key role in an indictment handed up today over alleged campaign finance violations by two Soviet-born businessmen who helped President Donald Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, investigate a top political rival. Well, all of a sudden, we're getting names here. Remember, we talked about an, an unnamed congressman that was involved in not necessarily a negative way for the congressman. At least that was the initial impression. But let's see if we can learn a little more here. The indictment doesn't mention Sessions by name, nor does it charge him with any crime. But it does make multiple references to donations and activities by a congressman that align with what's known through Federal Election Commission records and the Sessions uh, and Sessions' own words about the Republicans' push for the ouster of the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and his interactions with the two men, Lev uh, Parnas and uh, Igor Fruman. Sessions, who is seeking to revive his political career after last year losing his seat, didn't respond to multiple requests for comments on Thursday. So again, what is... What is alleged in the indictments? Well, they allege, the charges allege that the businessmen, both American citizens, by the way, born in Russia, but both American citizens last year committed to raising $20,000 in campaign cash for Congressman One right around the same time that one of the men uh, sought Congressman One's assistance in causing the government to remove or recall the then U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And remember all that weird conversation that none of us really kind of grasped 
fully in the conversation that President Trump had with the Ukrainian president because they were talking about ambassadors, ambassadors who weren't doing a good job, and you know we're all a little confused on that. Well, maybe there's a little more light here. Sessions had previously acknowledged that he met with the businessmen and that he wrote in May 2018 to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to ask for the, that ambassador's removal. But he has not revealed who or what motivated him to take that action. These two businessmen that have been arrested and are under indictment now live in Florida, arrested Wednesday night at Dulles International Airport while awaiting an overseas flight, as first reported by the Wall Street Journal. Very interesting. And then we just uh, got this uh, congressional reporter from Politico, Andrew uh, Desiderio, uh, just tweeted, News, House impeachment investigators have subpoenaed Energy Secretary Rick Perry. The subpoena demands a series of documents related to Perry's knowledge of Trump's July 25th call with Zelensky, that's the Ukrainian president, Uh, Democrats also want information about U.S. officials' potential efforts to make changes to the board of a Ukrainian state-owned gas company. Uh, Remember, we were seeing sound bites. We really didn't talk about it here on Inside Sources, but I was noticing them where Rick Perry was talking to various individuals saying, hey, look, the only thing I asked the president or was aware that the president was due was going to talk about some of the energy issues between the two countries. Well, now, apparently... House impeachment investigators have subpoenaed Energy Secretary Rick Perry, who is also the former governor of Texas. Interesting. We're just keeping an eye on this, and uh, quite a bit of interesting news has uh, unfolded around this just today. Okay, coming up next, we're going to talk with Faith Jolly. And uh, Faith is the public information officer for the Department of Wildlife Resources. We're kind of in the middle. Remember when many of us who are baby boomers were kids, you know, we got off for the deer hunt. Well, what's going on with the hunt and what are some of the guidelines? We're going to talk about that coming up next here on Inside Sources at KSL News Radio. I'm Doug Wright. We'd love to uh, get a text from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can always text us on the Utah Community Credit Union KSL text line at 57500. It's interesting. We are in the season. I was uh, working on my fence around uh, Eureka. Uh, we, we have a kind of a rail fence around our home, which the snowplow in Eureka seems to like to target each and every winter. But that's a story for another day. Thus, I was out repairing that. And uh, I looked up and I saw this vehicle heading down and the person looked somewhat familiar to me. And all of a sudden, it was kind of a long lost relative. And uh, we just chatted forever. But he was down in that neck of the woods. And if I remember right, it was black powder uh, that uh, he was he was out doing some some hunting. And I'm not a great hunter. I, I just never have been. I've been deer hunting a couple of times, but it was for the social part of it more than anything. I keep hoping that somebody else uh, will get a deer so they will share the venison steaks with me and elk, but uh, I'm, I'm not the guy. I, I, I just am not a great hunter. But uh, occasionally if somebody wants to drop a nice elk steak by, I'm certainly willing to take it off their hands, but it reminded me. Of um, the season that we are in, it can be a little uh, complex. It's interesting. I have a lot of friends who really go for the various permits and so on. 
and end up hunting in different areas. It's it's really kind of complex when you get down to it, and we thought it would be interesting to talk with Faith Jolly, who is the Public Information Officer for the Department of Wildlife Resources. And Faith, I understand, like me, you're not the great hunter, but you do know the rules, right? I do. Well, yeah. Okay. I know. I uh, I haven't been hunting a ton myself, which I probably shouldn't admit since I work for State <laughs> Wildlife Agency. Um, but yeah, no, we, uh, yeah, I have a fun time at least trying to, you know, promote and kind of talk about some of our hunts. Yeah. Right. There are so many different hunts and different permits and so on. I actually had a friend who got a bear, you know, permit. I don't know if that's even the proper way of, of putting it. I, it, It's kind of amazing, you know, the different opportunities that are out there. But let's talk about the season that we are in right now. What's, what's happening in the state of Utah now when it comes to hunting? Yeah, so currently um, we have a lot of our upland game hunts happening. Um, so those are a lot of our different bird species, you know, rabbit species. Um, those are going on right now. And then we also have a lot of our waterfowl hunts just started last weekend. Some more will start this weekend. Um, and then next weekend is kind of the one that everyone's waiting for um, is our general season deer hunt. Um, that's our most popular hunt in Utah. So, yeah, we've got a lot going on right now. And the general season deer hunt is with traditional rifle, 30-30, uh, 30-06, that type of thing, versus black powder or bows or whatever. Is that correct? Yeah, so, yeah, we we do, it's, it's basically any legal weapon, um, and so, you know, people could use some of those other, you know, weapon types if they wanted to, but primarily most people are, are using their traditional rifles, yep. You mentioned the, uh, the uh, like, duck hunting and so on. As, as I uh, fessed up to, I'm more of a social hunter the few times that I really have been out there, and uh, some of my fondest memories were going duck hunting with my grandpa, and I really didn't care about getting a duck. I just cared about being with him and the fact that he would yeah. let me drive his uh, his car once we got on the private property out at the Rudy Duck Club, <laughs> you know, just a little bit to the north of uh, of the, the, the lake itself and the airport. Uh, so I, I had ulterior motives, honestly, but how big is hunting in the state of Utah compared to the old days when I was in high school? Boy, talk about what a different era and a different time. I mean, it was not un, uncommon to have somebody with, um, you know, the the family truck or their individually owned truck that had a, a a gun rack in the back and the whole thing. And we, we actually got time off to hunt back in the day. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. And it's, and it's maybe hard to compare to back then because I think more than anything, rather than there being less, you know, people out hunting in the state of Utah, I think just kind of the perceptions are a little bit different now. And so, you know, back in the day, everybody hunted where now it is kind of, you know, a little more polarizing, I guess, for people. Um, But honestly, our our license sales have um, increased a lot of them from last year. So it is something that is still very popular in the state of Utah. Um, And in fact, you know, there, there was kind of a study saying that nationwide hunting had maybe kind of hunting and fishing had kind of started to be taking a dip over the last decade mm-hmm. um, but it has stayed pretty steady in utah in general interesting we used to be kind of snarky and you know it's 
kind of like, you know, we're, it's kind of like some of the skiers who go, you know, like Alta. I love Alta. Alta is for skiers. We used to have that kind of attitude about hunting in the state of Utah. And we used to laugh at the people that would come up from sea level and they couldn't handle the 10,000 foot, you know, slopes and so on. And sadly, we actually had heart attacks and you'd always just kind of lay your money on. They're probably from California. And interestingly enough, often they were. And when you look at the number of people that do come here from outside, are those numbers still similar? Because there used to be kind of a friendly resentment, all the people that would come from out of state back to Utah where they used to hunt when they were a kid. Yeah, so, you know, I actually don't I don't know as well our out-of-state non-resident um, permit numbers. I do know that we still do have quite a bit, though. Um, but with some of our hunts, like with our sportsman's permit, that's going to be opening, the application period is going to be opening in a couple weeks. That is just for Utahns. So there are still some, you know, specific permits just for Utahns, you know, for those that may resent that we allow, you know, yeah. non-resident hunters. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure overall kind of what those numbers have been like recently. What has the population growth in the state of Utah meant? When when I was a kid, I remember when Utah, you know, hit a million residents. Wow, that was a, that was a big deal. And now we're well over three million and growing yeah. rapidly. What effect has that had on the actual areas where people can hunt? Yeah, so I think you know we are kind of the whole process of where the units are set up and stuff is is usually all taken through that public process. Um, So people, you know, can have some input, some of our different public meetings and things like that. Um, But overall, I mean, like I said, hunting has stayed, has remained pretty steady in Utah. And so it just has, because there's more people here now, you know, there maybe has been a little bit higher demand. And yeah, so a lot of these hunts, the permits will go really, really fast because there is, you know, more people moving here to the state that have that interest in hunting. And so, you know, we, we kind of do not have quite the, you know, the demand to meet the, or the permits to meet the demand in all of these hunts. Right. What do you recommend for people, you know, for the great hunters out there, people that, and and there are folks that are so into that. I mean, it's just part of their culture. It's part of their DNA. And, you know, going through a a fall season or whatever season it it might be without uh, partaking of the hunt would be unthinkable. What do they have to do? What, what, how do you get in line and how big a process is it? Yeah, so with with a lot of these big game hunts, um, because like I said, we don't we can't give the number of permits to meet that demand. Um, we do just kind of a drawing type system, mm-hmm. um, and so in the event that somebody did apply and they maybe didn't get that permit that they were hoping for, you know, maybe for the deer hunt or for elk or whatever, um, there is still a ton of opportunities for them to get out and hunt. Um, for instance, I'd kind of mentioned some of those upland game hunts, the waterfowl hunts that are going on right now. All of those are available to anybody. You can just buy an over-the-counter permit. So just because you didn't draw out in that, you know, initial big game drawing, permit drawing, doesn't mean that you can't hunt this fall. So that's something that, you know, there is always kind of that opportunity for somebody that does want to get out there. Right. You know, you you brought something up, and, and I, I mentioned a friend of mine actually was uh, hunting bear. What What is the most exotic, what is the, the most unique hunting permit you can get in the state of Utah? What What is kind of the pinnacle, yeah. the Mount Everest of hunting, as it were? Yeah, so um, I, I kind of briefly plugged our sportsmen um, hunting permits are probably kind of those, you know, we have some once in a lifetime, 
you know, special permits and, and these sportsman permits, we give one permit per year of a couple of different species. And these are kind of the the big, you know, the best of the best that people are interested in hunting. So some of those include, you know, bull moose, um, bighorn sheep, mountain goat, black bear, um, some of those different types of things. So those are probably kind of the iconic ones that people think about when they think about hunting in the western United States. Um, and so, yeah, like I mentioned, that, that application period is coming up, and people are allowed to apply for as many of those, you know, sportsman's permits as they would like. Any final advice to uh, the hunters who are going to go out and engage in the general deer hunt? Yeah, so if you if you are one of those that, you know, got a permit for this upcoming general hunt, um, you know, we just recommend, you know, have fun, um, you know, go out and be safe. Make sure you're wearing that hunter orange, especially if you're in an area that has a lot of other hunters that's going to be, you know, a pretty popular area to hunt. Um, and then one thing that, you know, our biologists and we recommend is do a lot of time scouting beforehand um, just so you kind of do know where those deer populations are so that you have more success and so you don't spend as much time, you know, time hiking around, um, you know, spend a lot of time using binoculars and kind of scouting those areas before you head out. Well, I appreciate uh, the, the update. Faith, thank you. And even though I'm not uh, the, uh, the world's greatest hunter or the most devoted hunter in the state of Utah, I admire those who are, and uh, I hope it's a safe season for everybody and you've helped in that. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I hope that everyone has a has a good time and stays safe. Thank you. Faith Jolly with us, and she is the uh, one of the information public information officers, the public information officer for the Department of Wildlife Resources here on Inside Sources today at KSL News Radio. So how much do you make here in the state of Utah, and uh, where does Utah actually fit in the overall scheme when we compare ourselves to the other 50 states? Well, the bottom line is we're right in the middle. We're going to talk with the uh, communications specialist for business.org who put together this list that's coming up here at KSL News Radio. <laughs> you know, uh, we ask for texts often uh, here at KSL uh, in all of our, our day parts. Uh, this one I am not going to. Uh, read the thing in its entirety. But obviously, this person is not a fan of hunting. There is a preceding statement that basically uh, sets the stage, but I'm happy that hunters are rightly seen as, and then it goes on. Uh, this is not um, <laughs> This is not a hunting fan. You know, it's interesting because when it comes to hunting, uh, I know even some fairly significant animal rights advocates who recognize that uh, if not for the hunters, and again, I'm I'm not a great hunter. I'll, I'll, I've already fessed up on that. But if not for the hunting seasons and so on, the 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 plight of uh, many of the uh, animals in the overpopulated areas, where often the permits are are issued, uh, is is pretty tough. I know it's it's a hard word for a lot of people, but harvesting, they're they're actually um, it makes some management sense. And even though I am not a hunter, I appreciate those who do for the right reasons. I have to admit, you know, if somebody wastes the meat and uh, does not go out to, or at least make sure that the meat goes to a good use or so on. That troubles me, but uh, boy, I read this text. You know, sometimes I'll just 
immediately bring these up and read them cold on the air. I'm glad I didn't hit that one cold on the air. I'll put it that way. Okay, so meanwhile, back of the ranch, topic at hand is salary reports from around the entire country. And Madison Hagen is joining us right now. I really appreciate her willingness to join us here on Inside Sources, communication specialist for business.org, who's, I understand you guys are right here in the great state of Utah. This is home base for you, is that correct? Yes, it is. We're located here in Salt Lake City. Well, I appreciate you joining us today. And it was interesting as we were reading a little bit about Utah's ranking uh, in America for the best average salary. And I'll let you make that official announcement. Where does Utah rank out of all 50 states? So Utah's ranking right in the middle. We're at number 25, and that'll be out of 51. So we took a look at all 50 states and include the District of Columbia as well. Interesting. Number 25. You know, when I was a kid, this is a long time ago, but there was kind of a joke in the state of Utah that the best way to make a million dollars is to work a million hours. And (laughs) we did not have the best reputation as being the the most uh, generous with salary state in the union. But right now we're, we're dead center. I, I have to admit I'm very curious about who is the worst and who is the best. Could you put the bookends on that? For sure. So coming in at number one is going to be Wyoming. They only make about $4,000 a year more than us here in Utah. They're sitting right above $40,000 as an average salary. Um, but they only have to work 33.6 hours to afford their rent since their housing costs are so much lower, which is why they're ranked much higher than us. Never did um, I guess. you. I, I could have guessed for, you know, probably 30 or 40 guesses before I would have said Wyoming. Right. Yeah, that was kind of surprising for us, too. I mean, I love those guys. Wyoming is one of the coolest and most beautiful states in the Union. If I didn't live in Utah, I I could easily be a a resident of the great state of uh, Wyoming, the cowboy state, but never would I have guessed that. (laughs) Yeah, that could be a good place for anybody to go, then, if they're looking for a better place to be. All right. And a lot of this is based on your salary versus what it costs to to what have have housing yeah so the way that we came up with this report is we wanted to figure out where the best pay was and then in order to um, deal in cost of living we looked at how much it would take to afford the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment so when you take that median salary and you figure out how many hours you have to work to afford your housing that's how we came up with the ranking now when you uh, mentioned that for Utah the average is thirty six thousand seven hundred ninety dollars per year, and it would take 57.5 hours to afford a one-bedroom apartment. Is, is that a, that's a single income. I'm assuming that's not a combined family income. No, that doesn't take into account dual income. This is just singular income um, that's reported as being the average income for Utah, right at that 36000 mark. Okay, so we're in the middle. Wyoming is way ahead of Utah as number one. Who comes in 51st? Because we are counting the District of Columbia. Yes, so I don't think this will be too surprising to anybody. New York ranks absolute last in the nation. Um, they're coming in at an average salary just under 45000 a year, but it's going to take them over 100 hours of work just to afford that rent, which is coming in just below $2,200 a month. Wow. You know, I have friends, and as a matter of fact, our producer uh, has ties to the Bay Area. And I, I would have guessed maybe San Francisco, although Manhattan and New York, I guess that makes sense. But where does San, where does, uh, San Francisco or 
well, and and it's the state. It's not just a particular area, but I, it looks to me on this on this um, uh, map that I'm looking at from you guys that California actually fares fairly well. Yeah, so California is actually coming in just right above New York. So they're ranked 50. Um, if we take a look at San Francisco, their average salary is just above 54000 a year, but their rent is actually much higher than New York. It's coming in at an average of $2,600 a month. So they're still working that 100 hours in order to afford rent, and that's very comparable to both Napa, the Santa Cruz area, Los Angeles. So all throughout California, people are trying to afford their rent, and they're having to work at least 100 hours to make that. So New York and then California, and uh, let's round out the really expensive five. Who else is in that group? So in that group, we also have... We have Massachusetts coming in, at Florida and Hawaii. Um, in Massachusetts, you have to work about 85 hours. Florida takes about 84. And same thing with Hawaii, just below Florida at 81. Wow. So let's go to the uh, real primo states again. So we're in the middle. Wyoming is the absolute best. Who comes in after Wyoming? North Dakota. So North Dakota is coming in with a salary not much higher than Wyoming. It's only 41000 compared to the 40000 in Wyoming. But their housing costs are lower, so it's also going to be 36 hours to afford their rent. Interesting. And round out that five for us, would you? Yeah, so we've got Wyoming in first, Dakota, North Dakota in second. Third is West Virginia. Fourth is Alaska. And Oklahoma comes in fifth. Interesting. And the rest of us are kind of uh, with us here in Utah, huddled right in the absolute middle of all of that. Where, from from a business.org's uh, position and w- what you guys do, wh- where do you hope this information goes? What can people learn from it? What can it, uh, what can it serve as far as business is concerned? So we're really hoping to make other people understand more of how far is their money going to go, where can they get the most bang for their buck, and that salaries matter, but they're not all that matters. Um, You might be able to earn more in some states, but you might not necessarily be getting more. Um, And this can also help business owners understand what kind of payroll taxes they'll be paying, where the best place is for a startup, or if they're wanting to become an entrepreneur, what they're going to have to be prepared for if part of that move in their life is also going to be moving across the country. That is so true. A really good friend of mine, his brother, moved. Uh, He was in a high-tech business, moved out of the state of Utah because the pay was so great in San Francisco. And he went down there and he went, holy cow, I'm not even breaking even down here, even though I'm making so much more money. Yeah, it's definitely something to consider, especially if you're concerned with your cost of living, what your lifestyle is going to be. All of those things will play into how much of a salary you really need in order to pay your basic bills. And then also on top of that, do some things that make you happy and that are enjoyable. Madison, before I let you go, tell us a little bit more since you're a homegrown company here in the state of Utah. Tell us a little bit more about business.org. So business.org is here in Salt Lake City. We're a community of small business enthusiasts. So our mission is to help decision makers find the right tools and the right services in order to grow their business. And our hope is that our information is going to help connect small to mid-sized businesses with in-depth research, product reviews, expert recommendations in order to make the the right choices to become an entrepreneur or to start their startup. Madison, thank you for spending this time with us here on... Thank you so much. Inside Sources at KSL News Radio Community communications specialist for 
Business.org. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to just review. There have been some things that have been unfolding while we have been on the air today, and that includes the two individuals that were arrested in West Virginia last night and indicted in re- regards to some, well, well, we'll play the charges for you as were enumerated by FBI, FBI special agent in charge. And now uh, there are some additional things that are happening, including Congressman number one that was mentioned in the indictments and the charges, rather, against these individuals we found out was Congressman, former Congressman Pete Sessions out of Texas in the Dallas area specifically. Also, while we have been on the air, we now have uh, Rick Perry, who is our energy secretary, of course, in the United States, who has been uh, subpoenaed by the impeachment inquiry committee. So we'll run through what the latest information is on all of that here on Inside Sources with me, Doug Wright, at KSL News Radio. Stay with us. Of heroin. News Radio. It's been great having you along on the program today, and uh, in the last segment, I'd like to catch up on things, and we've had some breaking news during the program today, and it's been more on the national arena. And when you see headlines like this, two business associates of Trump's personal lawyer, Giuliani, have been arrested on campaign finance charges, that kind of gets your attention. And rather than have me rehearse what they have been charged with and how all of this came down, uh, let's replay the soundbite that we have from William Sweeney, who is the assistant director in charge of the FBI's New York office. Harness and Fruman contributed $325,000 to Committee One. Now, this contribution was not made in their name. It was made in the name of a corporation that they set up, GEP, in order to hide that the true individuals behind the donation were Parnas and Fruman. The $325,000 was one of the largest donations that Committee One received. And we, uh, in the indictment, we indicated and alleged that this was an illegal straw donor scheme. In addition, Parnas and Fruman made direct contributions to Congressman One. And these contributions, direct and promised, totaled over $20,000. Moreover, Committee One spent approximately $3 million to benefit Congressman One. Well, there's something that we have learned since all of that came out and the initial story that we rehearsed came out. Uh, We have found out that Congressman One is Pete Sessions. Uh, He was born in 1955, an American politician from Texas, served in the U.S. House of Representatives for 11 terms, member of the Republican Party. He was chairman of the House Rules Committee from 2013 to 2019, former chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee. He was defeated for re-election by Democrat Colin Allred in the November 2018 election. And um, on October 3rd, he announced that he was running for Texas's 17th congressional district in the 2020 election. So he's uh, regenerating his uh, political efforts. But now this is a rather interesting development, to say the least. And the absolute latest information that we have on this This came through just a few moments ago. I'm not sure there's a lot new in here, but this is the latest. Two Soviet-born donors to a pro-Trump fundraising committee who helped Rudy Giuliani's efforts to investigate Democrat Joe Biden 
were arrested late Wednesday on criminal charges stemming from their alleged efforts to funnel foreign money into U.S. elections and influence U.S. politics on behalf of at least one Ukrainian politician. Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, two Florida businessmen, made a brief appearance in federal court in Virginia today dressed in T-shirts. Both men are U.S. citizens but born in the former Soviet Union. So obviously we will continue to keep a very, very close eye on all of that for you here at KSL News Radio. It's interesting, too, we saw a lot of Rick Perry yesterday, and uh, some things were coming up about the phone call that President Trump made to the president of Ukraine. And Secretary Perry yesterday was saying, look, all, all I said was, let's talk about some of the energy issues. Well, it's interesting right now to see what uh, is going on. This is the latest information we have. The headline reads, Energy Secretary Rick Perry hit with subpoena in Trump impeachment probe. So House Democrats have issued a subpoena to our Energy Secretary Rick Perry. This happened just today in the latest salvo in the party's impeachment probe into whether President Donald Trump abused his power through his interactions with the leadership of Ukraine. The subpoena for a variety of Ukraine-related documents was issued by the Democratic Chairman of the House Intelligence, Oversight, and Foreign Affairs Committee. It provides a deadline of October 18th. And we have not seen any direct reaction on this from either the uh, Secretary of the Department of Energy or the Department itself. No immediate response uh, for the request for a response that, of course, is coming in now from uh, various news sources around the the country. The subpoena demands, this is what the subpoena is actually asking for, they want a series of documents that are related to Secretary Perry's knowledge of President Trump's July 25th, it's being referred to by some as the infamous July 25th call, with President Zelensky of the Ukraine. Democrats want uh, information about U.S. officials' potential efforts to make changes to the board of a Ukrainian state-owned gas company. And, of course, uh, there are some Biden ties to that as well. A lot of moving parts on this. A lot of things are unfolding right now, and we'll continue to try to sort it all out for you here on the uh, on not only Inside Sources. Uh, but tomorrow I will not be filling in on Inside Sources because it's movie show day. So, And I thought uh, Jeff Kaplan was quite impressed. I, I took uh, the donut order for yeah. the movie show. Somebody actually came in and said, okay, what are your donuts for tomorrow? And I was amazed. That <laughs> happens in your life? It's 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 kind of a special existence, Jeff, you know, that just happens. You and know, as I think about it, you're Doug Wright, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just go, this guy needs donuts or he goes crazy. So the movie show tomorrow, we got a lot to talk about on the movie show. And uh, then the following week, by the way, on Inside Sources, there will be others filling in. But uh, it's it's kind of an interesting story. I will be back the following week and for a little while longer, keeping the seat warm here. Uh, Greg Scordis will be here tomorrow. I've known Greg for years and years. That'll be a great show uh, tomorrow afternoon on Inside Sources. And then uh, next week, Dee and I are going to be uh, taking a little vacation time and uh, hanging out down in the Bay Area. I have yet to see Hamilton. And uh, Dee was able to, through some interesting, although I believe legal connections, 
get some uh, some pretty nice seats to see Hamilton. And so we're going to be down in the Bay Area. And uh, so next week, next week, there will be others filling in on Inside Sources. It's always great to be here. Thank you so much. We appreciate your texts and your voicemails always and much to talk about, obviously. So throughout the afternoon, Jeff and everybody here at KSO will be keeping you right on top of all of the breaking news and information. Thank you very, very much for being part of the program today. It was interesting, the uh, ground that we covered, and we talked a little bit with Audrey Pierce, Salt Lake City Emergency Management, the Fix the Bricks program. We also got into Bernie Sanders, and he said that uh, he was more fatigued than anything, and he said, I must confess, I was just flat dumb And uh, thank heaven I have a lot of energy during the campaign, so it looks like Bernie is back. And I really was interested in our conversation with our state treasurer, David Damshin. He's always interested in getting Utah's money back to them. But the treasury, get this, is holding $26 billion worth of uncashed-in savings bonds. So um, we'll keep you apprised on that as well. Thanks for joining us today. Live breaking news now on the mobile app for KSL News Radio. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, You need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.